1: hello and welcome back to the game podcast the new season is nearly upon us but in many ways did last season ever really end we'll be talking past present and future on this episode and nothing sums that up better than the women's world cup I'm Tom Clark, and joining me to discuss England's performances so far and their hopes for the rest of the tournament are Molly Hudson and James Restall. Now, Molly, we'll come on to England's most recent six-one thrashing of China shortly, but I wanted to start by asking for your general impressions of the tournament so far. And I must say, on the um, the webcams that we're chatting on right now, I'm slightly sad that your screen isn't upside down, given that you're down under. But I, you know, could have put some effort into the podcast planning. How, how have you found how have you found life down under?
2: I've been here so long, I forgot I'm upside down over here, that's what it is. It's, it's been incredible, actually. I think uh, having done the 2019 World Cup, and I, I think we talked on this podcast about how for much of that tournament in France, you, you, did, you wouldn't really have known it was happening, especially in Paris. There just wasn't really much advertising. There wasn't really much merchandise. The local people weren't that interested in the tournament. And, and I think that's what's been so impressive. It genuinely really feels like you're in a tournament over here. And I think obviously we knew from the euros england got very engaged um and it really felt like that last summer but it's been it's been really surprising to to get that over here really in a in a country of australia's size uh in a country which it isn't really a a football, a, a soccer as they call it country so it's been really impressive in that sense and i think obviously having a host nation um in it that are at least in with the chance of winning has helped too um but yeah i would say Certainly, it's been a pleasant surprise how engaged people are with the actual football over here.
1: Tell me a little bit more, just briefly, on that engagement. I mean, you know, are you walking around and there's posters everywhere? Is it on screens in every bar that you go in? You know, or is it a bit more scat, scattered about? What What's it like in that sense?
2: I think it was very immediate when you well, I initially landed in Brisbane um, for for England's pre-camp on the Sunshine Coast, and at Brisbane Airport, you were immediately greeted with big billboards um, in in some of the airports, including in Auckland. So obviously we're this tournament is in Australia and New Zealand, although England only based in Australia. Um, in Auckland, where you kind of get into arrivals, it's, it's done like a football pitch and the family members wait for passengers on like football seats, like in a stand. Um, so they've kind of put a lot of thought, a lot of effort into it. And I think maybe the most impressive thing is, look, I love a football kit. I love seeing all the different football kits when you get to a World Cup. And historically, it's been pretty impossible to really get women's kits, especially if it's, solve sort of anything that's that's not a, a big nation really um obviously we we've heard about the the problems england have had in terms of Mary Earps goalkeeper kit in terms of the actual kit being like sold out pretty much everywhere in the uk but over here there's pop, pop-up shops um there's a brand called rebel which kind of have pretty much every world cup shop uh, shirts uh, you can just go in and, and buy them they have them in men's and women's fit and that that's certainly the first time i've ever Really experienced that in the women's game, and it's just so much fun to see, you know, little girls and little boys, and grown ups too, you know, being able to wear wear women's shirts, um, even with names on, for the for the first time, really, on a on a kind of mainstream level.
3: You've you've bought all thirty two, haven't you? There's thirty two of them going back in a suitcase to, to London.
2: Well, the problem is as well, they're now thirty percent discounted for the teams that are knocked out.
3: Uh, so now that's I'm like, well, it'd be, rude.
2: It'd be rude not to buy them too, wouldn't it?
3: <laughs> What's your favourite design out of all of them?
2: I do like the England away one the blue one i think that's nice but the i like the simplicity of the ferns black kit and because and obviously they they've been knocked out so they're one of the 30 percent off and i'm opening and r in as to whether i should get it or not but yeah there's some quite good kits actually but yeah it, it, it's just nice to see them even there although maybe mm. not nice my bank balance to
1: be honest molly i think james's question gives you full full rights to stick it on expenses so i would take that I'd, I'd take that as your opportunity i'd put it through don't worry about that now moving on from kits and on to england it's been a very very eventful group stage so far 2-1 nil wins an injury to the key player everyone thinking the tournament's is over whilst at the same time a star has been born in lauren james and now a formation change and a huge thrashing of china molly try and sum it up
2: Well, do you remember when England were really boring and predictable? Um, (laughs) Yeah, those
1: those were the days, weren't they, eh?
2: Honestly, my job was very easy. Um, (laughs) It's just, it it was absolutely crazy, particularly um, the China game. The team could have just been anything. You look at the the 11 names on on the team sheet and uh, I messaged James and said, are England playing a 4-4-2? And then they ended up playing a 3-5-2, which sort of sums up how, how crazy it's been, I think. There was so much in the build-up that kind of went against England, obviously injuries to key players, Lee Williamson, Beth Mead, Frank Kirby, all of those walled out. Then we had the dispute over bonuses. And then we had obviously Mary Epps coming out saying, look, I can't buy my goalkeeper kit. I'm a bit mad at Nike. And there was just everything seemed like it was going wrong, seemed like there was unrest in the camp. And then the football started. It started off really slow. The game against Haiti, who, to be fair, were, were massively underestimated by us all. They, they were actually a very good team um but England did struggle it was a slow start and then you fear the worst when Kira Walsh gets stretched off thankfully it's not her acl the dreaded three letter word as everyone keeps calling it in England camp whether she'll play or not uh, going forward we're not sure but i think the the china game was really this morale boosting victory that England really needed. I think we, we kind of had it in the Euros last summer with the Norway game, that remarkable 8-0 win. And it felt like a moment like that, just in terms of everything that had gone against England before that. China, were, you know, they're not the greatest team in the world, but they're ranked 14th. They're, they're not bad, they're Asian champions. So I think everything really went for England in that game. And I think it, it was nice to see Lauren James, you know, everyone has always protected her. I've always known what a huge, huge talent she is, but every manager she's ever played under, you know, Casey Stoney, our columnist, of course, Emma Hayes at Chelsea, Serena when everyone has played down her talent because we wanted to make sure that she was really ready for the massive amount of attention that she was going to get. And here she is, this is her moment. This is the time she's announced herself on the global stage. And last night against China, she, she was just simply unplayable. Nobody could get anywhere near her.
1: You've teamed me up perfectly for my next question, which I've called James Talks James. James Restle, uh, Lauren uh. James... It's perfect <laughs> match made in heaven. James, tell tell the listeners about some of the pieces that we've done uh, on the background of Lauren James, because Molly talks there about her being a figure within the women's game who's been talked about for a long time, but is only now becoming a kind of main figure in the public eye. Yeah, it,
3: it, her um, she, she's kind of been the worst kept secret I think um, in the England setup um, because. Um, I'm Alison Rudd. Um, a frequent um a contributor to the game podcast. Um, has known uh the the James family for um for quite some time. And um basically, you've got you've got Lauren, you've got her older brother Reece, who who plays for Chelsea in England men, and their dad Nigel is a is a coach who um, works outside the Academy system to develop young players, and he coached young Reese and young Lauren. Um, and and it was kind of because of you know, when, when Reese got his opportunity to join the Chelsea Academy aged eight, Lauren also was able to join age six, and um, and so she's been this kind of rising star. She went to Arsenal, didn't quite work out for her there. She went to Manchester United, um, where, um, as Laurie, as, as as Molly mentions, um, Casey Stoney took her under her wing. And then she, she became, she, she, she kind of told her she could become anything she wanted to be the world's best player. And, in the piece Alison wrote for us um, after the Haiti game, she was saying that it was kind of almost a surprise that she didn't, she wasn't included in the 2019 World Cup squad. She was that deemed as that good, aged 17, um, and she wasn't included in the Euro squad either. And now this is her big chance to shine, and she's absolutely taking it. Um, Molly mentioned to me yesterday that this this brilliant stat that. Only three players in Women's World Cup history have been involved in five goals in a single match. One of them being the legendary Alex Morgan, who scored five goals and got three assists against Thailand in that infamous 13-0 win four years ago. It's only happened, I've got the list here, um, it's only happened a handful of times at Men's World Cups as well. Um, So she's taken this amazing opportunity um, and I'm really excited to see how far she can take England in this tournament because it kind of feels like
1: we're watching the star of the tournament when she plays. Absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting you say there about how far she can take England because it does have that feeling of like, you know, a young Wayne Rooney at the Euros for England's yeah. men's side and other, other young players that we've seen. Molly, how big do you think it's been James's emergence and the kind of lift that that gives the other players, especially when you contrast that with the kind of the low of losing Kira Walsh, such an important player. Do you think, as well as her performances, the kind of personality factor of having a young player coming through plays a big part in keeping morale really
2: high? Whenever you speak to England players, I, I think I think it was Leah Williamson after one of the Arnold Clark Cup games in February called called Lauren James a cheat code, and it's like it is it is an open secret among the England players. They know how good she is they see it in training every day you know all of her managers have always seen it but I think with LJ she hasn't always had the consistency we we kind of see this incredible talent but we forget that she's still a very young player in some ways she's she's quite immature she she doesn't enjoy the media side of things she's she's quite a shy person actually to to people that she doesn't know and uh, I think that's why she's been protected so much and we saw her have a fantastic Arnold Clark Cup, but then for Chelsea, for example, she didn't start against Barcelona in the Champions League. So she has had kind of peaks and troughs in her form. And it was just about whether she could produce those moments that everyone knows she can on this big stage. And I think that's what's so exciting. And it feels as though once she got that that first goal against Denmark, it just feels like it's almost flipped a switch. Like she's got that confidence and she's got that belief now. Whereas I think for a long time, everyone has always had that, but she's needed the chance and the platform to really show it on. And this, I guess, has been the perfect moment because England England are missing that star. I mean, we wasn't sure if she'd start at the start of this tournament. Um, Lauren Hemp has struggled a little bit for form. Obviously, Beth Mead isn't even here. So on paper, she might not have even got into this England team and things have started falling in the right way and I'm sure we'll get onto it later on but things are falling for England the right way too and you know she is a massive part of that and I think that there's not a team left in this competition that that wants to face Lauren James at the moment
3: just just want to say for our older listeners um explain what a cheat code is um a cheat code is uh is is something on a video game where um you type in a code and it allows you to kind of basically bend the rules of the game um to allow you to beat an opponent much more easily um the reason i mention it is because um it was it was also mentioned in the bbc uh, the, the the it was ITV said? I think the ITV commentary. No, the BBC commentary for the for the Denmark game. And 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 I think the, the commentator said, you know, England's cheat code gets the goal and 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 I and I thought that must be the first time that the phrase cheat code has ever been used in commentary and uh, secondly I thought that will probably leave a lot of viewers slightly confused but it's a great way to describe her because she is she's the she's the x factor she's the thing that unlocks all these possibilities for England.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Insert James 7 into any video game and you instantly get <laughs> through to the knockout stages. Now Molly you talked there about kind of uh, Lauren James believing that she could do it and kind of that, that goal against Denmark being important. And you can see that. I mean, that second goal against China, I can't think of many players in men's football, women's football, any, any form of the game that would A, take that on and B, pull it off in such spectacular fashion. It was interesting to me to see as well in that China game, a few other players, you know, you mentioned Lauren Hemp struggling for form, but I thought the way she took her goal was fantastic. That first touch out of her feet was sublime, like something that if you watch it, you maybe think, oh, well, that's just a good touch, you know, running onto the ball, but she kind of stabs it forward, but at the perfect pace to allow her to sprint onto it and take the touch first time. Who who do you think in the rest of the camp, maybe not performing to Lauren James's level, but who do you think has been some of the other standout players for this England team so far?
2: I think for me, somebody that is pretty underrated actually is is Alex Greenwood. Many England fans who have watched previous tournaments will, will know her as as the left-back. She she played 2015, 2019 uh, as a left-back and then she moved to Lyon and she went to centre-back and it, it's something that has really suited her actually with, with the kind of the, the modern centre-back as we see in men's and women's football, wanting the ball, good on the ball, ability to to play a a, a path forward. And she's gone from strength to strength really and she was unlucky in the Euros in in the sense that um, Leah Williamson made quite a late choice that she wanted to play in defence rather than midfield. Because in the build-up for that tournament, the centre-back partnership had been Millie Bright and Alex Greenwood and then obviously it got broken up. Williamson and Bright, partnered famously were fantastic but alex greenwood barely got on the pitch and this tournament because of the injuries and everything else she's she's been so important and i think particularly last night you could see it in the way that Ingle were playing in this new 3-5-2 formation millie bright uh, actually had an incredible game by far the best of her tournament because she'd been struggling a little bit coming back from knee surgery but it's quite clear to, to me that millie bright and jess carter are perfectly good defenders very good in the air put their body on the line, clear a ball. But what you're missing in Leo Williamson is, is that defender that has the ability to start an attack and that's what Alex Greenwood brings to this team. You could see um, Casey Stoney has, has actually mentioned it in in the column that will come, be coming out in, in a few hours. Uh, when she's in a back three, it just allows her to get that little bit wider to then make those angled passes. And it, it was just getting England forward so quickly and in so much space um, with, with the wingbacks. So I think she's had a really good tournament. And then the other one for me, I mean, Rachel Daly, I just can't really say enough good things about her. She's played three matches. The first one, she was very lucky to miss out on the starting 11, came off the bench as a striker. Second game, she's playing left back. Third game, she's playing left wing back, a position she's never played in her life, comes in and has a fantastic game and also gets on the score sheet. So I think, as you say, Lauren James has taken the headlines, but those two players have been fantastic for England as well.
3: It's kind of, um, it's interesting to see uh, how Serena's kind of alighted upon this formation, which actually kind of Gets the best out of the players that she has at her disposal, um, because I, I thought Brighton Carter looked quite vulnerable in the first game against Haiti, and and and, and so bringing another centre half alongside them shores that up, um, and also as you say Molly allows Greenwood to kind of be the ball playing defender um, as well, which 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 England didn't have when it was just the two. Also, I think uh, just thinking back to the last Euros, and the only real weak spot that was really highlighted at the time was. Daily being a bit exposed defensively as a left back, but playing as a left wing back, it allows her to use her. It gets the best out of her in an attacking sense, and means she's not as as and he doesn't need to be as responsible defensively. Similarly, um, Lucy Bronze on the other side loves to get forwards, and it also then solves the midfield conundrum um, when you don't have Kira Walsh. And it did. It reminded me a bit actually of the kind of the sort of solution that Gareth Southgate found in 2018, which, which got England to the semi-finals rather unexpectedly. They didn't, there are some parallels. They didn't really have a recognized left back because Luke Shaw had suffered lots of injuries and was out of form. Um, Ben Chilwell hadn't really come to the fore and it was, and it was uh, Ashley Young who kind of ended up playing in that kind of hybrid left wing back role. Um, Three center halves because not that Gareth Southgate didn't quite, trust the two pairing at that point of Maguire and Stones, so that the pace of Kyle Walker was brought in and that allowed Harry Maguire to have a bit more freedom as a ball-carrying and a ball-winning midfielder, uh, a ball-winning midfielder, sorry, defender. Um, and, um, and it also allowed them to get Kieran Trippier into the team who um, was a, a big threat from set pieces. Um, and it also solved the problem of not having any particular outstanding midfielders. Um, but it only got England so far and it only got them to the semi-finals. And it'd be interesting to see your thoughts on whether this, sort of how far this kind of, not quite square pegs in round holes formation, but this kind of, this sort of sticking plaster solution will get England in this tournament.
2: I think it, I completely agree with, with your thoughts on the defence because obviously Chelsea also largely playing in the back three, so Millie Bright and Jess Carter are just naturally much more comfortable in there. So I think it, in that sense, it helps England a lot. I think the conundrum really, and I, I suppose as the draw potentially opens up, the, the games are currently being played, so we're not entirely sure who will get through in terms of England's potential quarterfinal opponent, we know they they have the round of 16 opponent in Nigeria, is exactly how this formation might work if Kira Walsh is fit to play some part. Because as far as I'm aware, Kira Walsh has never really played in a back three. Certainly hasn't played in a back three against a, a decent opponent for England. And I think this, this formation is perhaps something that they've been working on, but it certainly is more born out of Walsh's absence. The fact that, Without Walsh, you need an extra midfielder in there because there's nobody that can really do what what Walsh does in terms of screening that defence and and providing so much both defensively and also connecting with the attack. So I think it's a difficult question to answer without knowing if Walsh is going to be fit for any part of this tournament. I think the fact that we've expanded to 32 teams means there's much more time between games and that's really helped Wiegmann in terms of coming to, you know, being able to do this formation because all the players have pretty much said it was quite a last minute option. But it's just whether that gives England enough time for for Walsh to recover from this mysterious knee injury that the FA are being very tight lipped about. Um, But I I think it's certainly a formation that seemed to get the best out of pretty much everyone that was available. So for now, I... I don't see why they would change it. For me, I would probably stick with it against Nigeria too because they're probably going to be quite transitional. And when England do play in that back four, particularly without Kira Roll kind of screening that defence... England looks so, so vulnerable to the counter-attack, um, so I th- I think personally I would keep this three five two at least for this Nigeria game and, and then reassess from there.
4: There's
1: lots of fascinating points to unpick there on what you called, Molly, in your match report a tactical master plan, but I wanted to come back to Wiegmann in particular, just because, you know, Molly, this is of course the coach who didn't make a single change during the Euros and kind of we thought she was the anti-tinker coach really, and you know, you are kind of thinking, is she able to make these changes? You know, we were talking before the Denmark game, and you came on from the press conference and said to me, "Tom, hold the back page. Serena Wiegmann might be about to make a change to the team." Oh my god! <laughs> and and here we are now talking about formation changes. How do we pick people? I wanted to ask, what does it say about her as a coach, Molly, and kind of how has she seemed in the press conferences? Did she seem as flustered by the Kira Walsh situation as as we all did as England fans?
2: I don't think Serena Vägman does. Flustered. I think what she did do in the aftermath of that presser was actually be quite snappy. It's probably the most grumpy I've ever known her to be. Um, And there were a few questions in in that post-match press conference. I think Ellen White had actually said on, I think it was the BBC, that England Mm. didn't have a plan B at the Euros.
1: Yeah.
2: And somebody put that to Wigman and uh, it didn't go down too well. She was kind of like, well, that was the Euros and this is now. And you've just seen our plan B. Now, clearly, that was a short-term plan B, uh, an in-game substitution that she'd been forced to make. But I think uh, what Wiegmann does is she is so calm externally. And I think part of it, we talked a lot about it in the Euros before England had actually won anything, is that Serena had already won something, which was massive. And I think now this whole squad kind of take that and they have that in their back pocket. They, they, they started to kind of talk about it last night that it feels a little bit like the Euros where it's all just starting to click and they they know what that feels like now. Before Wiegmann, they didn't. They they had no sort of measure to go up against and I think in that sense, everyone just has such an inherent trust in what Wiegmann does and what Wiegmann says because she literally hasn't done anything wrong in the entire time that she's been in charge. So I think if Serena Viegman tells you as an England player to play in a back three, you go, "Yes, Serena, absolutely," because you think it's going to win you the tournament. And you know, so far, so good for England. Again, I think you know th- that's what's so impressive about Viegman. She she actually kind of laughs us a little bit when we point to her that mm, you don't really make that many changes, Serena. Um, I think I think this time it's very much looking at the opponent, analyzing basically who England have left that's fit and how they can get the best formation personnel onto the pitch. And I think in a way her adaptability has been born out of this injury crisis, but clearly she's shown she's pretty good at it.
1: Now, I haven't watched all the games at this tournament, but I have to say of the ones I have seen, Nigeria really stood out as one of the teams of the tournament so far. I'm going to ask both of you to pick one team so far that have impressed now it doesn't have to be a team that have qualified it can be a team that have performed above themselves or beyond their expectation
2: i think the 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 easy answer is japan but for me uh, i think it's i think and this is such a cop-out of an answer i'm sorry but just all of the low-ranked nations like so many times i i spoke to james in the lead up this tournament and i said I fear for a few of these teams here, I fear they might be on the wrong end of some really heavy score lines. I mean, Vietnam, for example, played the US in their first game. The strides that all of these teams have made physically, even if they're not as technically gifted, you know, not every team is going to have a Lauren James and that's okay. The strides that they've made just to close those gaps and to just stay in games has been incredible. I mean, Haiti, Haiti ended up going out of this tournament without a win, but against China, Denmark and England, who were all, I'm pretty sure, top 15 ranked nations, stood toe-to-toe. And absolutely, you knew you'd been in a game with Haiti at the end of that one. So I think that, for me, is what has surprised me the most. It pleasantly surprised me. And, you know, South Africa have just knocked out Italy, and they've progressed. And that's a fantastic story. You know, Nigeria haven't even been paid, haven't been paid since the Olympics, I believe and are out here going toe to toe with some of the leading federations the, the most backing the most infrastructure to support them and they're getting on that pitch 11 players versus 11 players and they're they're pulling off some shocks and it and, and that's what i think has been so great to watch from purely just a, a fan perspective to see the level that they've brought in this competition when when we did expand this to 32 teams. And we did fear what that might mean for some of these results.
3: I I will go for the easy answer of Japan, please. But but, but, but I have got a wider point to make, which is that it was really interesting while just sort of researching the development of the women's game and what 32 teams would mean um, in the build up to this. Just looking at the, um, sort of where all the players were based. And it's so interesting that I think at the last World Cup, around 5% of the players played in the WSL or the English system. And that figure is up to 14%. And the, the, the improvement and development of professional leagues around the world is only going to improve the standard when you get to the highest level, which is the World Cup. The first World Cup I watched was 2015. Between then and now, it's kind of night and day in terms of the 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 tactics you're watching, the technical ability of the players, the physicality of the players, the um, the, the 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 goalkeeping, it, it, it's almost like watching two different sports from from 2015 to now. The product has got so much better, and that and that is testament to the fact that there is better funding. Not not obviously not across the world. There are so many problems between. Lots of countries in their federations, Molly just mentioned Nigeria there as an example, but we've seen problems with Canada, we've seen problems with Jamaica, um, lots of countries, but fundamentally, the kind of upwards trajectory of, of domestic football is making for a much better product globally and and that's been highlighted in the in the group stages i thought i I thought i thought haiti looked fantastic against england gave them lots of problems and 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 they you know england could have lost that game conceivably um and that wouldn't have it would have been a shock result but based on what we'd seen they went toe-to-toe with england who are probably one of the best funded nations so um yeah, it's it's it, the, the the tournament as a whole has has surprised me in a way because it's been it's just been so good to
1: watch. Absolutely, and I think it, it struck me it drew slight parallels with um, the men's World Cup in South Africa in 2010 in terms of some of the points you made there, James, about the tactics and the sophistication of some of the lesser teams, just in in being able to stop or make more difficult to, for the for the recognised sides. But when it comes to those recognised sides, Molly, it hasn't been an elite tournament has it you know Germany losing that game to Colombia USA have been poor you know wh- wh- why do you think that is are those teams going through transitions if they've been caught off guard by some of the performances of these lesser teams wh- wh- what do you think's going on
2: there's a few different problems for different nations it's I, I'm not sure there's sort of a blanket answer to that I think the US have just been really poor I think they are in a transition period between you know the likes of Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan that are in this squad but also a frighteningly good young players going through like Trinity, Rodman, Sophia Smith are really their future. And I think some of the elder players have maybe gone on for one tournament too long. And I think it just isn't quite working. Their midfield in particular, they've just, they it's basically been non-existent. Vlatko Andonofsky, their their manager, doesn't seem to have um, really inspired them. I think back home, um, Casey was saying, obviously, she's out in San Diego. Um, she, she was saying that there, there's not the same belief that there always is with the US. Um, so I think that's definitely one to keep an eye on in these knockout stages. They were in the width of a post of getting knocked out by Portugal in the group. So that was... Remarkable itself, I I actually saw one of the US journalists say the US lost nil-nil, and I feel like that is exactly how it felt. So uh, that's their problem. Um, Germany were my pick. I'm I'm just going to say it now. That hasn't aged well. uh, My pick to win the tournament, and I think that was a case of them being caught out by Colombia, but I also think it's a general theme across the tournament that a lot of these... uh, lower ranked nations, underfunded nations, they're so quick. Like South Africa said today, um, I was listening to their captain, Tembi Gatlana, talking about how they just knew Italy wasn't as quick as them. So they simply just played on the counter-attack and they were quicker than them. When Georgia Stanway had come off the pitch after playing Haiti, she just went, some people are blessed with pace and some aren't, and I'm not, and Haiti are. And... It really has has been that simple in some of these games, and uh, it's like James said. I think teams are working this out t- tactically now to actually use that as a strength. But time and time again, so many teams. It was the same for Australia against Nigeria. You know, Colombia have the incredibly talented Linda Caicedo, who wrote something for the site on her about how the incredible um, journey she's had. She's only 18 years old, has already recovered from cancer, was player of the match in in both of their opening two group games, just just incredible stories. But I, I think a lot of the top teams have just not really been prepared for, for that pace. They just haven't known how to deal with it. And we're getting to a stage now where these teams, they are getting in behind and they're having the quality to actually score the goals. I think that's maybe what surprised people. You know, a team like Haiti are maybe going to have a few chances but you you might not have expected them to have good quality chances and that is what has happened and sadly for germany um and for some other teams as well that that's really been taken advantage of in this tournament
3: good test for england then that they had that challenge up first and again i see some parallels from england in the um in the in the in the World Cup and in the Euros and, uh, for, from the from the men's team in recent years, where the, the the I think we've 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 all been fans and media alike have been quick to kind of point out the deficiencies, but actually England have won all three games in their group. Um, They've they've conceded one goal um, from a, a, a dubious penalty, um, and I think Lucy Bronze has a lot to say about that if you go on the Times website right now. Um, and uh, but and yet but yet they've they've survived unscathed um, and put put in a one exceptional performance. And I think they would have we could have seen another exceptional performance had Kira Walsh not got injured against Denmark. Um, I remember you saying to me Molly, you'd never seen a match shift in momentum so much as a result of an injury to one player. So so I, I, I do think this is this all this all bodes well for England. It's coming home.
1: <laughs> James is excited and someone else who's excited about England's prospects is our star columnist for this World Cup, Casey Stoney. She couldn't join us on the pod because Molly's in Australia and she's in America and me and James are in England. So it was the logistical challenge was just too much, but thankfully she caught up with Molly earlier and here's just a little clip of what she had to say.
5: Well, it was really unSerena like if I'm honest. Like, change of formation, change of personnel. Evidence would tell you that's not what she's done in the past. You know, she normally sticks with the same players throughout the tournament. So, yeah, and listen, genius, because, you know, different goal scorers, different way of playing. Maybe the injury to Kira made them to force them into a different way of thinking and... And also now gives the opposition a problem because how are they going to play in the next game? Are they going to play like this? Are they going to play like they have done in the past? And obviously it puts Lauren James in a, a position where she can be really successful as well in terms of in that kind of central spaces where she can just kind of roam and pick up balls. And they've you know, still got threats with Lauren Hemp and Alessia Russo, you know, getting in behind and and giving them problems, two different kind of strikers, really, in that sense. Gives Lucy Bronze and Rachel Daly a bit more freedom to get forward without thinking about, like, you know, we were talking about Lucy Bronze going forward and that space behind her being exploited. Well, actually, that's not the case in this system. So, yeah, and it, it it worked very effectively. With the injuries that they've had, if you can keep as many of these players on the field for as long as possible, England have got a real chance. I think going into the tournament, not that I'd wrote them off, I just thought, surely not with all these injuries, can they really do it again? I'm starting to think they can now.
1: So there you have it. Molly? James has said they're going to win it, and now Casey Stoney has said England are going to win it. Are you going to be bringing the trophy back with you from Australia and New Zealand?
2: I think it does have the feeling of the Euros where everything is just going right for England. Germany split, uh, slipping up potentially means we may not play them in the quarterfinal. We still could, but it is less likely. I think it. in that sense, I personally was, uh, similarly to Casey, quite pessimistic. Optimistic going into this tournament, knowing all the injuries that England have. But then you watch all of the other teams, nobody's really been convincing, other than Japan. And it does feel like it it could be coming home. But I I, I do think there's a fear, and I think I think this happened in, in the men's tournament too, where England kind of fly through, they get a favorable draw, and then you come up against that good team. And it's kind of what happened in the Euros where England played Spain went to extra time. Obviously, Georgia Stanway scores that incredible goal and literally England's entire tournament turned on that moment. England could have easily gone out in that quarterfinal and we probably, well, I'd, I'd like to think I'd still be sat here, but it, we certainly wouldn't be as excited about England as, as we are now. And I think there will be another one of those moments, whether it does come in the quarterfinal against maybe Germany or or even a Brazil or if it does come in a semi-final. But I think that's, you know, we can't get too ahead of ourselves as much as I'd love to at this moment because England haven't really been tested. I think what England need to do is use these games and that's what they've done so far to, to try and work out their best team of whoever is available and be the very best prepared for that game that will change the entirety of their tournament
3: please bring the World Cup back with you because the ashes are staying where you are. So um, (laughs) it's only fair, really, if you can bring the
1: World Cup back with you.
2: Let's hope Australia don't win this as well, because then they would absolutely be unbearable.
1: Molly, for one so young, that was a perfect bit of positivity with a bit of realism. That's what I liked hear at this stage in the tournament. Now, you'll be hearing a lot more from Molly and Casey Stoney in the podcasts that we've got to come. Uh, you can also read lots more about the Women's World Cup on the Times website right now, including Casey Stoney's latest column and Molly's reports from the England camp. Molly and James, thank you very much for joining me. Up next, we'll be looking ahead to the start of the championship season and the rest of the Football League. August 4th. That's right, we've only just left July. The Ashes have only just finished. But on Friday night, Sheffield Wednesday and Southampton start their championship campaigns and in turn kick off the Football League season. Joining me now to look at all three leagues are our second favourite, Scott after Johnny Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, and Willis Bennett, who has been hard at work compiling our excellent and comprehensive pre-season guides, which you can read online all this week. Now, Gregor, I'm going to come to you. Excited for the Football League season to get going? Always,
4: always. You know, it's a, it's a cliche, but the, the kind of chaos and unpredictability of 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 the AFL is is its <laughs> biggest seller point, the biggest selling point and, and always has been. And the excitement every year is no different. Even if there's some teams in the Championship who are coming down and, and you... Yeah, you think look so strong for the division there'll always be one or two of them who who who, uh who discover the reality of the championship and it's not so easy
1: I mean it's interesting you talk about the realities of the championship there Uh, Willis I'm going to dive straight in your championships pre-season preview uh, listeners can read that online at times.co.uk right now I found it really interesting looking at the automatic promotion contenders because you've picked out three teams in Leicester Middlesbrough and Leeds who for me, to me in the Football League, having a good manager is key. It's, it sounds like the most obvious thing to say, but it's as Gregor said, it's such an unpredictable league. But in, the, in these teams, you've got Enzo Moresca, the untested but exciting coach. You've got Michael Carrick, who impressed so much with Middlesbrough last season. And then you've got Daniel Fark, who, as you said, you've got a two-time championship winner in charge. They're quite varied coaches in terms of what they bring and what you can expect. Why is it you've picked those three out?
6: Yes, I I was looking at Leicester, um, very wary of the too-big-to-fail tag. um, Because as you said, Gregor, in this league, there is no such thing as too-big-to-fail. But I was looking at the spine of their side, bringing in Conor Cody is a good signing, I think. Um, Similarly, Harry Winks, solid in midfield. Uh, They've managed to retain Mark Albrighton, Castagna for now, Ian Nacho, Dewsbury Hall. Um so although Moresca, who worked under Guardiola last year as a as a first team coach rather than the main man, um, I think those players can perhaps enable Moresca maybe to lean on them at times if if his first go in, in charge um
1: gets a bit wobbly at times. Gregor, what do you reckon to Leicester's chances? I, I've gotta say I, I they fall for me in the not quite ready little bit hodgepodge i moresca might prove to be the coach of the season who knows but i have my i slight doubts that they were in such turmoil and chaos last season that to go into the championship even with those players that willis is quite rightly pointed out provide a really solid spine it f- still feels a little bit chaotic to me
4: i is sure it's chaotic i think it's just it is unpredictable it's not Maresca is the is the unknown and you know he comes with great pedigree but the championship is is an unforgiving division and it's not it's it's very different to you know you look, there are you could draw some parallels with Burnley and we have got a kind of uh, a Pep Guardiola acolyte taking charge of a team that's just been relegated and no one knew what was going to happen and obviously that went swimmingly for Burnley and a lot of that was down to some really smart recruitment and I think there is more to do for Leicester before the window ends there. But uh, I agree with Willis. There's still, you know, Conor Cody someone who like takes, takes a, a grip of the dressing room and leads and he's a huge sign. And, and I think Harry Winks could be huge as well. Kind of, you could draw a parallel with Josh Cullen, although he's sort of, you'd, you'd arguably say he's, you know, an upgrade on a, on a Josh Cullen, but someone who in the system and the style of play that Leicester are going to play will run the game. And, you know, you forget that he was in England International not that long ago. He's been out of sight, out of mind for a little while. But there have been, a, uh, I think, Callum Doyle as well, who did brilliantly at, at Manchester City. Uh, sorry, Callum Doyle, who did brilliantly at um, Coventry City last season is another good sign-in. So we knew the big players were going to leave. We knew Barnes, we knew Madison, we knew Telemans. I think there's still some work on the incomings to... To, to go, but they're going to be one of the favourites.
1: So Middlesbrough Willis, they've got that key thing that you need if you're ever going to get promotion: goals. Chuba Akpom, twenty eight goals and two assists, as you write in your piece. But they've also added a few a couple of interesting names to the forward line, haven't they?
6: Yes. Well, I think they needed to last year with with uh, Cameron Archer um, and Aaron Ramsey. Uh, they did. They definitely needed to kind of bolster up front again, give Chuba Akpom some some teammates to work with. Um, so last season, they had out on loan Martin Piero at Boca Juniors, who I can't claim to have watched week in, week out. But everyone says uh, he'll be exciting when he comes back. And similarly, Morgan Rogers is coming from Man City. And they've lost Zach Stefan in goal, which I thought may be a bit of a problem. But Seni Diang from QPR, I think, is a decent replacement. And in Michael Carrick, I think they've got a good man man at the top there very different to, let's say, Farker uh, at Leeds, who may be competing for one of those spots with Borough. Um, but when he came in last season, Borough were were in dire straits, weren't they? I think they were one point above the relegation zone, something like that. And then 18 wins, 10 draws later, and only a little bit of a stumble towards the end of the season meant that they couldn't quite get the automatic. So, yeah, for, for me, Middlesbrough are, are one of the three that I I reckon uh, are the strongest.
1: And thank you for mentioning Morgan Rogers because that gives me very early in this Football League segment a chance to mention Lincoln City. Morgan Rogers was on loan with us and he was honestly one of the best players I've ever seen play for Lincoln. He was on loan with us during the same season as Brennan Johnson. Of course, now at Nottingham Forest in the Premier League. And I honestly thought Morgan Rogers was better. I thought he had more potential. He then had a difficult loan spell at Blackpool uh, from Manchester City. So it'd be interesting to see whether Carrick can get a tune out of him because there's a serious, serious player in there. You mentioned Daniel Farker there, Willis. Gregor, I'm going to come to you on Leeds United. I feel like they've been one of your favourite topics on the game podcast over the last few seasons. You know how, how does how does it look to you going into this season after you know last season, all the managerial yeah. changes, the young players that they've still got in there. You know, there's a couple of exciting gems in there. If if Farka can kind of mould them into a solid team as well, how does it look to you?
4: Yeah, I'll be honest. When he when he joined, I thought this just doesn't feel like a great fit. Parker's kind of really mild-mannered, pleasant, <laughs> sort of softly spoken, high-pitched voice guy turning up Ellen Road. And, uh, you know, he's he's all about kind of total football, really. And it's it's a bit, it is a it's a shift. It's a shift away from Bielsa and Jesse Marsh and the kind of, you know, chaotic, uh, full-throttle football that that Leeds have been so, so well-known for, for, for a number of years now. He knows the division. I think a lot of it will depend on bet- what happens between now and the end of the the window as well. they only, you know, Ampadu and uh, Ethan Ampadu and Carl Darlow are the only two incomes so far. And there's big question marks over a number of a number of players that Leeds have signed in the last couple of years. You know, we are someone like Tyler Adams, who's you know captain of the USA. There's there's there still could be quite quite a few outgoings before the end of the season. And so it's how how Leeds. Look when the window closes i think will will have a big factor for uh to, to determine how, how how well they go but i think out of i think of the three relegated teams they're the one i would be most worried about just now actually because of that uncertainty over the, the their squad and under new ownership there's been a lot there's going to be a lot of change between the end of last season and by the time the window shuts the start of this season so it's they're another one it's hard to predict
1: you talk about how teams will look come the end of the window, and you talk about the teams coming down. I think Southampton definitely fall into that category as well, don't they? Yeah. Reports today Gary Jacob reporting that James Ward Prowse is almost certainly going to complete his move to West Ham. Romeo Lavia, of course. Paul Joyce has been reporting on his move, potential move to Liverpool. It, how do you see them looking? You know, Russell Martin appointed coach. You know, has had differing spells at various different clubs in the Football League pyramid do you think that's a good fit for them and you know what does he need to do with that squad to to give them a good chance of bouncing back
4: I think the thing with Russell Martin is he's always been a manager at MK Dons uh, and Swansea who showed great potential and you know a clear talent as a coach because the evidence was there in the style of football and the way that his team's played they're always the team who dominate possession most in any division uh, I think there was a period when MK Dons were, had a higher share of position than any club in Europe, but there was something about turning that into results. And now he's at a club with the resources, you know, in comparison to the to his opposition, the, the op- opponents in the rest of the division, who you would say he should be able to turn that dominance into into results. So it's a kind of test for him as well. It's like can this is a style over substance, or can he can he produce the substance? And I, they, you're right, they are the same as Leeds. They've got you know Salisu is another one who I think has been linked for the move to fr- to France. Really good defender. We spoke about the start, you know, twelve months ago, about the quality of all these young players coming in. It was going to be exciting. Um, It could go one of two ways, and we know which way it went. But these players would be, you know, outstanding talents at the championship level. But most, a lot of them, are going to be picked off. So another one is hard to predict. But I think, I think Russell Martin has shown enough so far to suggest that, with even with with the resources he has at his disposal. And the style of football he wants to play, they could dominate the division. Now, Willis, you
1: put Southampton in your category for playoff hopefuls rather than automatic promotion candidates. And that's because you opted for another team that play in red and white. With greater, greater hopes, and that was Sunderland. Now, this is a team that absolutely fascinates me. Uh, you know, I saw some of the players that are still in the squad playing in League One, and I think the move for Tony Mowbray last season when um, O'Neill left was a fascinating one because he's a coach that Gregor, you've praised him a lot on the podcast from his time at Blackburn in terms of being able to bring young players through. And that's the exact model they've gone down, isn't it, Willis, in terms of the players that they've signed and the kind of squad they're trying to build?
6: It is, yeah. I loved watching Sunderland last year. I think a lot of a lot of supporters thought the young side may may fall off or something along those lines, but they didn't. Um, and they lost Ross Stewart at Christmas. So I, I think this season, Sunderland, Sunderland can put in Bradley Dack from Blackburn Maybe some injury worries there, but certainly a good a good player to have in and around the squad. Uh, Jack Clark's still there. They've brought in Bellingham. Not that one. But under Mowbray, I, I think Sunderland can go again. Um, I'd like them to as well. Um, I read something on on Scouted Football um, about their sporting director, a guy called Christian Speakman. Uh, they've signed 19 first teams last summer at an average age of less than 21. So I think their their plan, their model is very clear. Uh, they're building for the future, but I don't see why this season uh, can come too soon, really.
4: Speakman's really interesting. He's he will be a big reason why Bellingham went there. He he came from from Birmingham. He was Birmingham's academy director, and so he knows the Bellingham family well. Willis is absolutely right. There's been a a huge pivot since his arrival towards towards youth, and it's exciting. That's definitely exciting. It's it's also another one that's unpredictable, though. So I would definitely put them. I would agree. I'd put them in the in the playoff chase. I'm I'm not sure that uh, competing with some of the some of the teams with more, with with bigger resources is is likely. But I think they'll definitely be in, in with a shot at the playoffs again this year.
1: Don't take that too personally, Willis. Gregor always sits on the fence on this podcast. Like he barely <laughs> ever makes a bowl call. So thank you for coming on and making a bowl call. Wh- Willis is excited about Sunderland. Gregor, who would be your kind of? you know, your, your less obvious team that you're excited about in the championship this season.
4: I think Ipswich are exciting. I think they were they were outstanding to watch in, in League One last season. I have a really exciting manager in, in McKenna. They have resources as well. I think, you know, they've not been not been that busy in the in the transfer window so far. George Hurst, who's been kind of threatening to be a, a player for a long a number of years. Omari Hutchinson, Jack Taylor from, from Peterborough. I remember watching him at Barnett when he was like sixteen he's a really talented midfielder but i think again it's about the sort of the the style and the way that they play football and i think that almost it'll be better suited to the higher division and you know they're under american ownership as i say they've got got resources they not not been as active as i thought they would so far but i i think they could potentially spring a bit of a surprise this season
1: we could talk at length about every single team here but i'm going to i'm going to direct listeners uh, towards Willis's excellent and comprehensive preseason preview, which does mention every team and gives great facts and figures about their off season. Willis, pick out some of the other teams, both you know maybe top of the table, mid table, and you know some of the teams that you're worried about. Give us a couple that you you particularly think stand out for either for good and bad reasons.
6: Firstly, I would just like to go back to Ipswich. I know Gregor just just mentioned them, but another word on Jack Taylor. Uh, I think he could be the best under-the-radar signing this season. He's definitely one to keep an eye on. In terms of in trouble, I am going to Sheffield Wednesday for me. They had an amazing end to last season, didn't they? 123rd minute. Josh Windass winner at Wembley. What was that? Only 65 days ago, I think. Cisco Munoz now in for Darren Moore. That, I think that surprised me and plenty of others. I think the wage demands at the, the club are through the roof. The, the management of player contracts isn't particularly good. So for me, Wednesday uh, may be in a bit of trouble this season. As will Huddersfield, I think. Neil Warnock did a great job, didn't he, last season coming in with, on a rescue mission. But if you look at Warnock's record over the past 10 years on seasons where he started at the club and finished at the club, you look out as a successful season. So for me, for me, Huddersfield might be in a bit of trouble as well. And QPR, another lovable manager, uh, Gareth, Gareth Ainsworth. Um, lost the goalie, haven't they, to, to Borough. I think QPR could struggle. Gregor, I don't know what you think about Cardiff, but Ramsey back is, is a fun one, but I'm not convinced it's necessarily going to keep them in the league. Um, uh, man in charge, Errol Bullet, f- spent a few years
1: in Turkey recently. I don't see any any solidity there, really. I've got to say I agree with you on the Aaron Ramsey thing I just don't I mean uh, uh, as much as it's wonderful and joyous and we all love a rom-com especially me I, I don't see it I, I think that could be a signing that could backfire um, particularly if they're pinning their hopes on him because the championship as we've talked about and as we see increasingly the the quality but also the pace and the physicality and Aaron Ramsey is at a stage in his career where he kind of wants to sit and knock passes around and he ain't going to be given the chance to do that Gregor how do you reflect on some of Willis's picks there at the top and the bottom any other teams that You want to
4: mention? You know, I I broadly agree. Particularly Sheffield Wednesday, I think it looks like they've already made a mess of of promotion. Cardiff, almost every summer now, (laughs) they're they're another club that a bit of a basket turned into a bit of a basket case. A couple of, you know, Carlin Grant as as well as said that can be a really good signing. Josh Bowlers just arrived on loan from Nottingham Forest, who was at Blackpool before. But uh, again, another manager who we know very little about and I would be surprised to see a change there <laughs> for, uh, in the first few months of the season. I think Birmingham, need, we need to talk about Birmingham. I think finally their kind of purgatory, their sort of very elusive Chinese owners is is, is finally over and they have a takeover by the brilliantly named uh, Shelby uh, company with a little nod to Peaky, Peaky Blinders there. But, you know, I, I, you know, big resources now. It's a, a US-based investment fund and they've signed a, f- few, interesting, a few interesting players already. Uh, Siriki Dembele, Tyler Roberts from Leeds, made Christian Bielik's, uh loan signing from Derby last year permanent. Ethan Laird, really he was you know, an outstanding kind of wing-back from the, the start of the Manchester United. So I think finally they can sort of... Say that the cloud over St Andrews has been dis, uh, dispersed, and I think there'll be a lot of positivity there this season. So um, they'll be really interesting to watch. Who else is going to be interesting? There, I think. I think Stoke. I think we say it every year. We have said it for years. But I think Alex Neil now having kind of uh, having a bit of time to to shape his squad, signing a few experienced players. I think he likely really values that Ender Stevens from Sheffield United, Ben Pearson, who he worked with at, at Preston. I think that they they'll be in the in the playoff shout. Definitely this year and it's like it's about time because as I say every season we've said Stoke Stoke have been among the favourites. Even the bookmakers have have called them as well and, and it's just not happened for one reason or another. But I think Alex Neal's a really good manager at this level and I think having the summer to shape his squad, they'll be in, in with a show as well.
1: Some interesting picks for me. I mean West Brom, I've talked about them on the podcast before, a place close to my heart having gone to university in Birmingham and for one season having a season ticket to go and watch them. I, I'm a this little is new worried.
4: information.
1: I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried. Yeah, I was a part-time West Brom fan for one season. I saw them get promoted under Roberto Di Matteo. It was great fun. Boing, boing and all that. Um, I was was too busy too busy at the Hawthorns when I should have been studying. But um, I, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried. Carlos Corbrand obviously did a brilliant job last season in turning their fortunes around. Um, but as Willis refers to uh, in his preview, they've lost Dara O'Shea, not necessarily made that many exciting signings. I'm a little bit worried about them. Another team I'm worried about and the manager I'm worried about, Valerian Ismail. How long's he got? October, maybe? November at Watford? <laughs> um, it doesn't look do- good, does it? Particularly when you've lost Jao Pedro and Ismail Assar. And Gregor, you picked out Stoke, uh, Willis, and you both mentioned um, Ipswich. I wanted a little word for Plymouth, who I think... Quietly under the radar, I think they were absolutely superb last season uh, in League One. A time when a lot of the media were understandably talking about Sheffield Wednesday and Ipswich and some of the other bigger clubs that were down there. Derby, of course, they came up as champions, 101 points. I think under Steven Schumacher, they could do quite well. I mean, and obviously, quite well would be survival. Um, but I think they could cause a few surprises. Gregor, what do you think on Plymouth?
4: Yeah, Plymouth are have been one of the best run clubs for a number of years. Simon Hallett, the owner, uh somebody who's from Plymouth, grew up there and become a very successful businessman based in the in the States. But they've they're really intelligently run. There a lot of kind of emphasis on, on data and the recruitment. They do a lot of great work in the community. And Plymouth are a big club, so like they he recognises that they're a, a kind of bit of a sleeping giant in, in that region. You know, having never had a a Premier League club, they wanted to do something about that. And I agree. I think that they do everything well there. Everything is is very well considered, and that that certainly is true of their their uh, the recruitment. Um, Morgan Whitaker is a great signing, and I agree. I think I don't think they'll be. You're right. Survival is the is the, the number one aim, but I think they can look up a little bit, um, and you know, broaden the, uh, raise the raise the bar a little bit this season.
0: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect
4: to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Speaking of League One, we'll move on. Lots of teams we could have talked about for much longer there, but we have to move on. On to League One. And Willis, talking of promotion from that division, you've got some bad news for fans of Wigan, Blackpool and Reading because you don't think that any of those relegated sides will bounce straight back this season.
6: Yes, I think... Uh, those that were relegated last season are going to stay in League One. Blackpool, I would probably be my pick of those of the three that came down: Wigan, Reading, Blackpool. Um, I think under I mean, Neil Critchley, they can probably do quite well this season. But I think I think there's too many too many better teams above them. So for me, the the three that came down in League One are going to be going to be mid table this season.
1: Who have you got going up? Come on, you can't just relegate them to the mid the mid table. You've got to you've got to. Back, back a horse or three.
6: I'm going to back Derby County and I'm going to back Derby County, Bolton and Peterborough. Two of those three are on my automatic spots. The, the Peterborough squad still so good. Um, Jack Taylor's gone. Clark Harris remains. Pokey remains. Mason Clark remains. Fergie, of course, remains. And I, I think Derby are up, Derby will be up there under Paul Warren, who I I saw a snippet. He went on on the local radio the other day, and he, instead of just starting with football, football, football. He gave the local traffic news. He seems like mm-hmm. a decent bloke. And and Bolton, I think, yeah. And uh, Ian Everett. They're my, they're my three.
4: Yeah, I agree. Derby are, are going to be very, very strong. Sonny Bradley from uh, from Luton uh, and Curtis Nelson, they're, they're brilliant, brilliant signings for the level. And that's kind of, you know, they already had attacking talent and Mendes Lang and, Uh, James Collins uh, Barkhusen so I I think they could probably do with adding another one up front but I think Derby will be very strong I agree with I think Bolton are just on an upward trajectory Uh, I think Charlton as well they've another team we've had a takeover in the summer signed Alfie May who's, who's kind of who's been brilliant with Cheltenham for a number of years and Michael Hector who you know who's was 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 outstanding for Fulham not so long ago. He's he's kind of had a bit of a drift, but I think they're uh, they've recruited really well. Portsmouth are going to be interesting too. I think they think they've signed eleven players under uh, John Mousinho this year. He'd been player coach at, at Oxford, but he's he's highly regarded as a as a coach, a kind of a bright young thing in the EFL, And it'll be very interesting to see how they do this this year. So, but I, I absolutely agree with Willis about the the relegated teams. Reading are, are they don't look like they've, they've bottomed out. They've got a three-window transfer ban. Uh, I was reading that they can only pay 1,400 pounds a week to new signings, which, for a size of a club of their size, and but the money that is now being paid, even in League One, means they're in big trouble. I think. And the same, Wigan, I think, I think could could do okay, but they've got a points deduction and still some uncertainty there. But I absolutely agree. I think it's 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 a division that's wide open this year because. Because of the, the kind of state that uh, two of the big clubs who have just been relegated find themselves in at the start of the season.
6: Gregor, can I ask you about Northampton? Uh, unfortunately, in my in my preview, that they're, they're in the in the bottom two. John Brady said he's they're done in the window already. That a couple of low knees have stayed on. How do you see them going this season?
4: I think it'll be I think it'll be a struggle. It always is Northampton. is just this this kind of club that are the. The ultimate yo-yo club between League One and League Two, and it's something that really frustrates the the club and the fans. I I know that I played there for a season, uh, but I think it's going to be another year where they where they struggle. They don't have the they're a club that kind of can compete very well in in League Two, but when they step up in the in the resources, uh, a division above means that they they have to be run brilliantly well. And I agree, John John Brady did a really good job, I think. You know, particularly after a couple of seasons ago, losing out on automatic promotion in the style that they did. That remarkable game when Bristol Rovers, what was it, 7-1 they won to, to kind of tip the balance in their favour. And, they you know, the, the next season they they managed to get out of their system and, 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 and get up. Uh, I think, as it has been for a number of years now, League One will be a struggle for them. But
1: there'll be lots of teams similar to that you know the promoted sides you've got Stevenage Carlisle Blayton Orion Exeter I mean these these teams are all going to be punching way above their weight really in terms of going up against some of those big teams that you've talked about like the the likes of Derby to Portsmouth teams that have spent a lot of money um, and have got serious um, experience in the squad so it'll be interesting to see how it goes lots lots again that we could still have talked about we've got to move on there's only one team to start with in the league two section had an incredible season in the national league last year including a thr- thrilling promotion clincher and they've made some great signings no i'm not talking about wrexham i'm talking about knots county willis you've picked them out as one of your teams to watch uh, this season tell us why
6: knots county for me are up automatically And they've got David McGoldrick in. The supporters of Notts County are all going a bit wild about him already. I think he's got an absolute peach in pre-season, about 25 yards, top corner. So with with McGoldrick in there, I think Notts County will be up automatically. And I've gone for Stockport and Gillingham as my other two. Apologies to Wrexham fans out there already. Um, Gillingham's a bit of a rogue one, you may say. I think they were 17th last season. Uh, And Anil Harris, though, they've got a serious manager, haven't they? What was he promoted to? League One, 2017, something like that, was it? Um, lost the playoff final the year before that as well, I think. So, so basically, uh, under Harris, they've got they've got someone who's been there and done it. So, I think Gillingham Gillingham can go again this season. Uh, they were relegated, weren't they, two seasons ago? Had a poor season last season. I was expecting them to do be much better. They were on the brink, I think, at one point, right? they? They were really really in trouble after 25ish games, a uh, point above the drop, maybe something like that. And then towards the end of the season, really picked it up. 10 wins in the, in the last 15. So Gillingham up with Stockport for me, um, who have kept Will Collar, uh, Paddy Madden, a few others who who I think are, are, are good enough to go again. Um, fourth last season, weren't they? Lost to Carlisle. One kick away against Carlisle from from doing the double up. Um, and Wrexham probably somewhere between four and seven, I think. Uh, Paul Mullen in a race the fitness for the first game after that clash with Nathan Bishop in the in the United game. Um, so, yeah, Wrexham in the playoffs for me.
1: Gregor, thoughts on, and I will let you talk about Wrexham, but I think Willis is right to pick out McGoldrick's signing. That's potentially one of the most wow signings in the Football League across any league this summer, isn't it?
4: Yeah, they're all excited about Dan Crowley as well, who was a bit of a kind of teen prodigy, played for England youth youth at youth level went to Birmingham I think he played overseas in, in in the Netherlands uh Birmingham he was at Morecambe last season and 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 did brilliantly for them so he was he's a really talented player it's just about getting the best out of him and that could be a really good home for him as well and yeah McGoldrick McGoldrick's like you know although he's, he's getting on in years he was never blessed with extreme pace he's kind of someone who's whose ability and uh, and intelligence means I think he'll play on for another number of years yet I'd say MK Dons too. Graham Alexander went there. It's kind of went under the radar quite early in the summer, um, but he's someone who's who's had promotions with with Fleetwood, with Salford from the National League. I think he's a really good, effective manager in uh, in the lower leagues in England, and he'll have decent resources for the level too. And I agree with Gillingham. Like Gillingham, Gillingham were bizarre last season. They they were the worst team in the country until the takeover happened and then we spent a lot of money in January and and became one of the best teams in the league Um, and they've since signed Johnny Williams. uh, Scott Malone, who was at Millwall not so long ago, they're spending some serious money again under uh, US uh, ownership. So I would say they're not the only only team with, with, with real money and backing. I don't think it'll be a walk in the park for Wrexham. Wrexham will be one of the favourites, but there are a lot of teams with a lot of teams with with money there in Stockport. Are one of them signing Nick Powell, which is kind of is another real well so, signing this this summer. So, a uh, fascinating league.
1: Absolutely, and uh, for everyone talks about the championship being the hardest league to get out of, I always think the league two is right up there. So, and uh, you mentioned them there, Gregor, in Salford City and their rise and the desired rise to the heights of the championship and beyond. That's one for Wrexham fans to keep in mind uh, as they approach this season, chaps. will have to leave it there. Very sorry. To listeners, if your team has not been mentioned, but rest assured, if you go online now, you can read Willis's in depth previews, in which he'll definitely pick out uh, your side. And also, this stick to stay tuned because this season we hope to bring you even more coverage of the EFL. So stay tuned for that. And if there are any areas of the game you would like us to explore in more depth, get in touch on Twitter or you can email me direct at tom.clark at the times.co.uk. Thank you very much to Gregor Robertson, Willis Bennett, James Restall, Molly Hudson, and Casey Stoney. We'll be back on Monday with the 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 first of our Premier League season previews. See you then.